Welcome back to the All About Audiology podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lilach Saperstein, and on this week's episode, we're going to discuss speech therapy and how audiologists and speech therapists work together. If you are a student of audiology or of speech pathology, welcome to the podcast. We have a lot of exciting tips in here for you. But before we jump into my interview with today's guest, I want to tell you about something I've been working on for you something that I think is going to help a lot of parents of children with hearing loss who are overwhelmed. Wherever you are along the process, I hear from so many of you that sometimes you just don't know what to do next or which professionals you should be talking to, what appointments you should be making next, how to keep organized all the different things that you have to do and that come with having a child with a hearing loss. So whether you've just gotten a diagnosis and you're in that state where there's so much to do, but it can be hard to know what to do first or what to do next, this is the guide for you. It's the five-step guide to navigating your child's hearing loss. It's a free PDF, and you can download it for free at allaboutaudiology.com guide, allaboutaudiology.com guide, G-U-I-D-E. All you have to do is put in your email address and the guide will be sent straight to you. You'll also be added to the mailing list to get updates about the podcast, but if you want, you can unsubscribe and that's totally fine if you just want to get the guide. It's something that I've seen so many parents go through the process of getting a diagnosis or of, you know, years in still dealing with so many questions and so many you know, being pulled in so many different directions and being able to even define what are the questions that you have. So I've created the guide. I really, really wanted to help as many parents as possible. So if you can use that, head over to allaboutaudiology.com slash guide. The link will also be in the show notes of this episode. And if you know someone who can benefit from it, please do send it to them. Please help to spread the word. In my experience as an educational audiologist, working with many patients and many parents, I've seen that getting clear on what you know and what you don't know yet, or what you want to know, what you need to know, getting the distinction between what is known versus what is unknown helps you know what to do next. Now we're going to jump into the episode with our guest, Mary Louise Nichols, a speech language pathologist. So let's welcome her to the show. Welcome back to the All About Audiology podcast. Today, I have a very special guest with us, Mary Louise Nichols, who is a speech language pathologist, or as some people call them, just miracle workers who do lots and lots (laughs) of amazing things. So I'm going to let Mary Louise introduce herself and tell us all about yourself. Yeah. So I am uh, relatively early in my career. I graduated from Purdue University in 2015 with my master's in speech and language pathology. And since graduation, I fell in love with um, the medical side of speech pathology and working with adults. So I've been working in inpatient rehab and acute care all over the country. I've worked at several hospitals. Currently, I am in Houston, Texas, in the Texas Medical Center, working in adult acute care, and I absolutely love it. So I'm so happy to be here and be able to share a little bit about what I do and what makes our profession so special. That's amazing. Now, tell me about adults. Was that something you were always interested in working with adults? No, it's actually a funny story. So when I was in college, I did an AmeriCorps program. It was a two-year service commitment where I worked in early 
I guess, early education, early literacy program for preschoolers in the greater Atlanta area. And I absolutely loved it. And I thought that I wanted to work with children because I was working with so many children who had speech and language needs. And that's what initially got me into speech and language pathology. And then I got to grad school and I just fell in love with the adult side. I had a couple of adult patients, a couple of medical placements, and I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And I've just been focused on it ever since. One of the reasons I really was excited about having you on was because there's this huge misconception that speech pathologists yes. are the speech teacher that helps yes. <laughs> you have a list, it's that's what a speech therapist is, or you have a stutter, and that's the whole scope of what speech therapists are, which is such a disservice to this incredible profession and how yes. wide the breadth is of what you do. So tell our listeners a little bit more about what speech pathologists can do, what kind of studies you go through, and just to get a sense of the rigor of the profession. Absolutely. So I always have this joke, whenever I tell people that I'm a speech language pathologist, the first thing they always say is, oh, are you correcting my grammar right now? Are you correcting my articulation? And I'm like, no, I don't do any of that. So (laughs) I'm actually doing the opposite. I'm not paying attention to that at all. So what I do on the medical side is I work with adults who have a wide range of diagnoses from strokes to traumatic brain injuries to neurodegenerative disorders from head and neck cancer, trauma, so like car accidents, gunshot wounds, you name it. I mean, there is a connection for speech therapy. And mostly what I'm doing, I'd say about 80% of my job is swallowing. While we work on communication, we also, a large part of our job on the adult side and the medical side is swallowing. You know, you think about after you have a stroke, just like your arms and legs might be weak, um, the muscles that you use for swallowing can be weak. And so these people often have a hard time returning to oral intake and eating and drinking orally after a stroke or any other type of neuro deficit. Um, so that's mainly, that's mainly who I'm working with in the hospital. We also do your typical speech and language and cognition. We do a lot of cognition as well. So it's not just speech and language. A lot of it is cognition. So orientation, um, reasoning, problem solving, those all fall under our scope of practice. So that is not well known, but we do so, so much. And I think my colleagues are just amazing when I look at all of the things that we do in a day. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're kind of like the jack of all trades. Um, So going back to your question about education and how do you get here? So I actually took a non-traditional route to get here to become a speech pathologist. So typically you would do four years as an undergraduate and they have lots of speech pathology programs for undergraduates. And then after you are finished with your undergraduate studies, then you would go and do your graduate studies, which is a master's, typically a two-year program in speech language pathology. In my case, my undergraduate studies were in psychology. I took more of a non-traditional route So I got my bachelor's in psychology, and then I went to Purdue, which was a fabulous option for me because they have such a great three-year prerequisite program. So instead of doing the traditional two-years master program, I did a three-year master program, and I was able to get my degree in three years and get all of the prerequisites that I needed. Now, once you finish your master's, then you do your clinical fellowship. 
which is uh, typically a nine month fellowship that it's basically you're, you're working, but you are under close supervision from another speech pathologist. And you do that for nine months. And then after nine months, you get your C's, the big C's, also known as your certificate of clinical competence. So you get your C's or CCC, you get those and then you are able to become a licensed and full speech and language pathologist. So it's a long road, Hmm. but totally worth it. Wow. So I have a question about the C's. Yes. So if you finish your master's degree after two years of graduate studies and you have a master's in speech and language pathology, you actually can't practice unless you have the C's or is that a misconception as well? That is a misconception. So you actually can practice without your C's. However, more and more employers are wanting you to have your C's. I think one, it creates a continuity across requirements. So um, the American Speech, Language, and Hearing Association, or ASHA, that's our professional organization. Um, And that is the organization that gives us our, our C's. And so there are strict requirements in order to be qualified for your C's. And so most employers are looking for everyone to have their C's, especially in the medical side. I don't think that there's a medical position that will take you without your C's, at least not very many. So the C's are becoming more and more sought after. So if you are looking into going into this field, I would definitely recommend getting your C's. And it's it's really not hard. There are some certain continuing education requirements that you have to do. And of course, there's a, a membership fee. But I would encourage everyone to keep your C's because yes, you can work without them, but they're, they're so important as far as opening up a plethora of job opportunities for you. So that extra nine-month placement is in order to get the C's, but you are already licensed to practice. Maybe it varies state to state. I don't know. It does. It varies state to state. So I do believe what's happening is a lot of state licensure is starting to overlap with the C's licensure. Mm -hmm. So it's almost worth it to go ahead and get your C's um, because pretty much what you have to do for to get your state licensure, you have to do to get your C's. So for example, you mentioned doing the nine-month clinical fellowship. Um, yes, that is a requirement of ASHA to get your C's, but I believe a lot of states are moving towards doing something similar. They'll call it like a limited license where you have to have it for, for nine months before you're able to apply for your full license. I see. So with audiology, it's different. And just tell our listeners a little bit about that. Yeah, It's a four-year degree and it's a doctoral degree now, which wasn't like that in the past. Yes. So it's three years of intense graduate studies and then one full year, a 12-month placement of a residency is what it's called. And so during that residency year, that's when you get a job, not all paid. So many of them are either not paid at all or minimum wage or some sort of um, stipend or something. And during that time, that's when you get all the hours that you need in order to get licensed. So it's a little bit more of an intense and lengthy process to be an audiologist. But the great thing about speech pathologists and audiologists is that we overlap so, so much with our caseload and with what we do, what we work on. So I think the collaboration is one of my favorite parts of what I do and why I have so many great friends and colleagues who are SLP. <laughs> Big fan. <laughs> well, thank also, you. A lot of people who are students who are listening, who are maybe an undergrad and then undecided which way to go, which branch. Should I go with the yeah. SLP branch or the AUD branch? 
So I'd love if you wanted to give your advice to some of the students who are looking at that decision. Yeah, I think that's a hard one because I think it's kind of a decision based on what you like to do. I know in my case, going into graduate school, I obviously knew I wanted to do speech and language pathology, but I took a lot of audiology courses when I first got started. And I think most undergrad programs will require you to take both speech and language pathology courses as well as audiology courses. And so that's really a great time to decide which one which one you would prefer. I know I took a few audiology courses and I just didn't feel like it was, I didn't feel like it was for me while it was very interesting. And I know that audiology is also a field where you can go in many different directions, but I really liked the speech and language and cognition portion of our field and being able to take more of a creative side and express more of my creativity going into speech and language pathology, I found that audiology was very um, number heavy. <laughs> which, yes. Um, yes. Numbers are not my strong suit. So I think that's kind of what made the decision for me. I'm more of a creative, artsy person. So I felt like I was able to express that a little bit more in speech and language pathology. But that's not to say that you have to be a number person to go into audiology, because I really enjoyed my audiology courses. And I definitely saw where you could potentially have a creative outlet in that field as well. I think it's just something you have to decide after taking the prerequisite courses. That's very good advice. And one of the things that I add to to all the students who ask me, I get lots of DMs about this actually on Instagram, (laughs) which is so fun. I love connecting with you guys. I offer to people that they should do some shadowing and connect with some audiologists in the community and speech pathologists in the community and say, can I just hang around for a couple days Absolutely. in the summer on break on the week, you know, Friday, whatever day you have off to just go and really be active in the investigation of knowledge, which one is for me. And of course you're not going to get all the data you need from just a couple hours of shadowing, but that was very, very meaningful for me because not only did I spend many hours in an audiology clinic when I was an undergrad? I think probably over the whole semester, I did every Friday. So it must have been 15 sessions or something like that, a bunch of times that I went and I got to see what they do, what the diagnostics are like. I got to be familiar with the different testing and say, hey, this is fun. I like the way that they, you know, one minute they're playing with a kid and trying to get them to throw blocks in a bucket for their hearing assessment. And the next minute they're teaching someone how to use a hearing aid and explaining all the different things. I was like, I like this, this this (laughs) variety throughout the day. So not only did I get that experience, I also made these incredible connections with all these professionals. You know, every time you come in, you are respectful, you're helpful, you make an impression on people. And then that's going to come around to you when it's time to ask for recommendation letters, when for placements. So it's never a bad thing to put yourself out there, even if you're not up to those stages, just to make those connections and to get a sense of what goes on. So the downside to that is, of course, like we're saying, you can't know if you're just being biased. Like if you're going to shadow a school SLP, then maybe you didn't even know swallowing was in the whole story. Yeah. You still have to be knowledgeable and aware. Yes. Where yes. the courses come in and ask yes. everyone you know. That's another piece of advice. Ask everyone you know and DM p- random people on Instagram. <laughs> yes, yes. Get a lot of advice. Yes, absolutely. Don't be afraid to, to reach out. I reached out to so many people 
on my journey to becoming a speech and language pathologist, especially because I decided in undergrad that I wanted to become a speech and language pathologist, but we did not have a speech and language pathology program. So I felt like I was kind of navigating blindly, you know, my junior and senior year of college when I was applying to graduate school and I was trying to decide which route I wanted to go. I had no idea that all of this was available to me. Um, And so I reached out to speech pathologists in the schools and private practice. And I was just like, can I please come and shadow you? Can I just talk to you about what you do? And everyone was so helpful and, and just so willing to talk to me. So that's the number one thing, just reaching out to people and, and letting them know that you're interested and we're all happy to help. Yeah. Especially if you're deciding for not only SLP or AUD, but SLP at all or any, right. any profession, like that's just good career advice in general. And also yeah. that you don't have to know for sure. I've known plenty of people who started a graduate program and after one semester or one year just decided that it's actually not for them and that's okay. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So another thing I wanted to ask you about was some of the common misconceptions that there is about SLPs besides for you only deal with lisp and stutters, but is there anything else that really bugs you when you hear about it you say, no, listen to me. <laughs> Let's hear if you got one of those. Um, sure. I think in the, in the medical side, we often are known as the diet police. And we, all we do is change people's diet and make them MPO, which is hospital language for nothing by mouth. So we've kind of gotten a bad rap in the hospital that we just take away people's food and put them on puree diet. And that's absolutely not what we want to do or what we do at all. We do so much more. So what we try to do is we try to get our patients on the the least restrictive diet. And so oftentimes that means using compensatory strategies. It might mean making diet modifications, but our diet modifications are typically the last thing that we want to do. So if we can do exercises, if we can do compensatory strategies, if we can do education, by all means, we want to do that. And like I tell my patients, none of this is permanent. This is only temporary for now. So even if we do have to make a patient um, MPO or change their diet, our goal is always for it to only be temporary. And so it really bugs me when people say, oh, here comes the diet police. Oh, speech is going to make them MPO. Oh, speech is going to take their food away. That is not what we want to do at all. We are all about finding solutions. We're all about improving quality of life. Um, and we are all about just making eating and drinking as comfortable as we can and reducing the clinical risks and improving the patient's health as much as possible. So yes, that is one thing that really bugs me. Thank you for letting me (laughs) share that. (laughs) So to understand, you're saying maybe someone is eating like mixed fruit. (laughs) What are those called? Those little cups. And then it's a danger that they might choke or that they might gag because their swallowing muscles are not strong enough. So right. you come in and say purees and everyone's like, come on, let them have the fruit cup. <laughs> right, right. Like, oh, I don't want them to choke. So, <laughs> Right. And so sometimes and that's, that's a perfect example. And so I think a lot of people say, oh, we come in and just give them a puree diet. Absolutely not. What I would do is I would talk to the patient and I would talk to the family and I would talk to the caregivers and I would ask them, what is it that you want out of life? Is it that you are 
85 years old and all you want is a fruit cup, then let's figure out a way to get you your fruit cup. Let's do some instrumental assessments. Let's get some imaging of your swallow and let's see what could be the safest way for you to eat this fruit cup. If this is something that you really want, let's try to make it happen. Let's not take things away. And I think that's a misconception is that we're often taking things away when in actuality, we're trying to work with the patient um, and improve their quality of life. Absolutely, we don't want you choking on a fruit cup. That's not going to improve your quality of life. So if it means taking away the fruit cup temporarily so that you aren't choking on it while your muscles are still a little bit weak, then let's lay off the fruit cup for a little bit and we can focus on some other things. We'll rehab your swallow and then hopefully we'll be able to come back to the fruit cup. Right. So in the meantime, you're strengthening and like doing all these exercises to get them to the place where they could return to the fruit cup. (laughs) Yes. Return to the fruit cup. Yes. (laughs) That's just what occurred to me about hospital food. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yes, fruit cups are very tricky. (laughs) Gotcha. So, I mean, that's even something that who thinks speech pathologists and then thinks about swallowing like that. I'm so glad you're here. So what are other kind of areas of SLP that are overlooked or aren't given enough attention? Right. So aside from swallowing, I think cognition is a big one that we that we don't talk about enough. Most people think we're just doing speech and language. And to be honest, when I graduated from graduate school, I, I was kind of taken aback by how much cognition we do because I feel like in graduate school, I was prepared for so much speech and language. And the reality is, is that we don't see a ton of speech and language. We see a lot of cognition. So again, that cognition is your attention, your orientation, your reasoning, problem solving, organization, thought formulation. And we're looking at how those things intersect with speech and language. And they intersect quite a bit and they overlap quite a bit. And so that's a lot of what we do is cognition as well. So I think that often gets overlooked in our field. Um, Another thing that gets overlooked is some of the less common specialties of speech pathology. So for example, accent modification, we, that is something that we do in our field. Um, Voice specialists, we work with singers people who have voice disorders. We work in conjunction with ENT, ear, nose, and throat physicians. A lot of these things are overlooked. Even speech pathologists who work closely with audiologists, so the oral rehab portion of our field, I think that often gets gets overlooked in how closely we do work with audiology. So I think people think, oh, you're either in the hospital or you're in the schools, but there's so much more that we do. I'm glad you mentioned oral rehab. So yes, would you mind giving us a definition and an overview of what that is for our listeners? Because most of the people listening will have some experience with children with hearing loss or just a connection to, to this specific field. Yes. So I have to be honest, I don't know a whole lot about oral rehab because that's not what I do on a, on a daily basis. But I do know that when children have hearing loss, that oftentimes it can result in often result in delayed speech and language. And so once the hearing loss is addressed, oftentimes the speech pathologist will, will work with these oftentimes children, but adults as well to work on their speech and language. So a big thing that I know is that people who are getting uh, cochlear implants, oftentimes we will work with them on their speech and language. For adults who are 
trying to rehabilitate their speech and language after a hearing loss, we will work with them. And I have seen some adults who've gotten hearing loss later in life and gotten cochlear implants. And I've worked with them on their speech and language, which was very interesting. I haven't done it often, but very interesting. And then also our children who um, are getting cochlear implants or hearing aids. And then we're working with them on their speech and language after they have gotten the intervention from an audiologist. Yeah. And that connection is so important, that interdisciplinary model working together and it was one of my favorite parts of working as an educational audiologist. I was the educational audiologist in the school and there was one of me and about 12 <laughs> speech pathologists because, yeah, you know, the nitty gritty, the day-to-day work of doing the practicing and discrimination and all these. Yes. So all the actual tasks and drills that the children needed to do, you know, the practicing and getting it, getting it right day-to-day. Yeah. And so I was there to make sure all their equipment was functioning and to be part of the team. But I had so much respect for the patience, the creativity that the speech pathologist had to bring for that day to day, you know, and that's where they were being called the speech teacher. Right. I guess there's mixed reviews on the speech teacher, because on one hand, you actually are a specialist. You have a master's degree in this field, a lot of training. So not to bring down teachers either, but you would like to be known right. as a speech language pathologist. On the other hand, some people are just more chill. Yeah. <laughs> and yet that is just like the school culture and environment. So. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. What do they call you at the hospital? What's like? Um, or? They call us speech therapists at the hospital. Mm-hmm. So our name tags say SLP or for speech language pathologist, but oftentimes we're just called speech therapists, which is kind of a, it's kind of a hot topic now because we're not technically just therapists. We are pathologists. We're doing the diagnosing as well. So we're doing the evaluation and the diagnosing, which is different from your occupational therapist or your speech therapist. So we are actually in a very unique field where we're not only treating, but we're also diagnosing. So for example, we're diagnosing different types of aphasias. We're diagnosing different types of dysphagias like or swallowing disorders. Um, we use the instrumental assessments such as the modified barium swallow study or the fees, the fiber optic endoscopic evaluation of swallowing. Um, we're using those and we're making diagnoses from our evaluations, which is unique to this field. No other, no other therapy, at least rehab therapy field is doing this. So that's why there's, this is a kind of a big deal. Are we speech therapists or are we really speech language pathologists? Yeah. So, and you're speaking to the therapist word. And I think from our conversation, you would even have it, have an issue with only speech language. Maybe it's speech language cognition pathologists. (laughs) Right. Or speech language swallowing pathologists. Yes. That's also a hot topic. Right. So at a certain point, we're on to semantics already, but yes, I, definitely, yes. <laughs> I definitely feel it. And one of the big controversial issues among audiologists and speech language pathologists is this key about oral rehab, that oral rehab can be billed by SLP. If an SLP provides a service, it's billable. But if an audiologist provides a service, it isn't. And so it needs oh. to be out of pocket or, I mean, most audiologists actually are not providing oral rehab or they are charging for it. And that's just seems like one of those things that just doesn't really make sense because we are trained in it and it's our specialty and it's our field, but we can't bill for it. 
So yeah. at least in the United States, that is a big issue. Yes. And why we have to have such close relationships. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Mary Louise, would you tell us a little bit about the breakdown in terms of special populations that SLPs work with? We spoke about children with hearing loss. We spoke about patients that have neurological events. And yes. what other kind of groups are there? So that's what I love about my job is that we deal with all types of people. So as far as special populations are concerned, we're working with people who have hearing loss, hearing deficits. We're working with people who are non-English speaking or second language learners. We are working with people who have intellectual disabilities. We are working with people of all different socioeconomic statuses, all different education levels. I mean, you name it, a hospital doesn't discriminate. And that's what I love is that you will see everyone in a hospital. You will see the CEO of a building. You'll see the CEO of an organization. You'll see your teacher. You'll see the butcher. I mean, you'll see every occupation, every socioeconomic status. Everyone is in a hospital. So we see all different types of special populations. In regards to diagnoses, um, like you said, we see our neuro patient. So that would be any types of strokes, brain tumors, aneurysms, um, seizures. We see our trauma patients, which are our traumatic brain injuries, our falls, our car accidents, our gunshot wounds. We see head and neck cancer patients. So that is, you know, throat cancer, tongue cancer, laryngeal cancer. All of those patients will fall into that category. We're also seeing a lot of heart and vascular patients. So when you think about our anatomy um, and the nerves that run through our body and around our heart, a lot of our patients who are getting these open heart surgeries, these sternotomies, they're having swallowing issues afterwards are patients who are just general medicine. Sometimes you see patients who come in and they're just a little bit confused, a little bit tired. Things are off metabolically and we're seeing swallow issues with them, even if it's just temporary and it's affecting affecting their stay in the hospital, these swallowing issues. It's putting their health at risk. So, um, I mean, you name it, we are all over the hospital. We're seeing all types of people, all populations. It's so fascinating what these professions do. You know, when, <laughs> when, you, when you come in and say, I, I want to be in a helping profession, and then you look at all the choices you have. Yes. You know, lots of us, OTs, PTs, we're all kind of on the same team, like getting people either to catch up developmentally or, you know, help them to function in whatever stage they're in in their life. From yes. From babies, kids in school, adults, elderly. It's one of those fun things. And then you get to, yes. so whatever, whatever yes. profession you pick, you can then go into different age group, different population fields. So yeah, it's, a, I mean, it's a big choice to make. <laughs> and it's really nice. You can also make a pivot at any point in time. Absolutely. If something isn't working for you, then you can move on to another clinic, another placement. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's so interesting. I have one question, something that's yes. interesting to me. When you talk about orientation, you mean knowing what day of the week it is, where you are, who you are, those kinds of things? Yes. So those are our basic orientation questions. Um, oftentimes we 
will ask even more in-depth orientation questions. So basically, it may be about holidays. It may be about birthdays. Oftentimes, we'll incorporate long-term memory. Um, I love to do that reminiscing with my patients. You know, tell me about what you do on Christmas. When is Christmas? It's on December 25th. Tell me about what you do with your family on Christmas. What kind of foods do you eat? Um, And it gets the patient reminiscing. So not only are we working on orientation, but we're also working on long-term memory. And the two kind of go hand in hand. And again, remember, we're talking about how these cognitive deficits intersect with our language deficits and our speech deficits. So sometimes it's a great task just to get some language going um, and using those language skills as well. For our more higher level patients, we might use orientation as far as like using a map or finding their way around a building. I've had patients who come and see me and every week they get lost and they forget where they park their car and we're having to get security to help them find their car. That's a cognition deficit. It's an orientation deficit. Um, It's a memory deficit. And these are the same people who will roam around for hours without asking for help. So now we're talking about a problem solving deficit. So we're able to um, work with these patients on those higher level orientation tasks as well. Yeah, that's what I mean. Who who would think that those are issues that fall under your scope unless you have to know about that? <laughs> like right, right. What a speech therapist does. And so do you have intersection with the psychology team as well? Absolutely. And if you're lucky, you'll get a great uh, psychologist or a neuropsychologist in your building. When I worked in inpatient rehab, we had a wonderful neuropsychologist who would help us and she would assess our patients and we would often collaborate on what the um, best treatment would be, what the best resources would be to send our patients home. I think neuropsychologists and psychologists are great, especially for children who are trying to go back to school um, after maybe a, a car accident or something like that um, and have a brain injury. Working with a neuropsychologist is very helpful in, in being that liaison with the guidance counselor or something like that to get them the accommodations that they need when they get back to school. So yes, we work very closely with psychologists and from a medical side, it's often the neuropsychologist. I think it's fair to say that I'm very impressed. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and I feel, I mean, even as much as I'm so familiar with the field, there's still things that you're teaching me right now that I'm so happy to be learning. Oh, great. Okay, so my question is now, after all the special things, let's go back. Tell us, like, what is the bread and butter of what the typical speech therapist at school, speech language pathologist, speech teacher <laughs> at a school, what are they working on and what what should a parent be looking for in their maybe overall typically developing child, but then they have some questions like, let's go back to the you know middle of the bell curve for a minute and hear a little bit about that. Um, for school age children? I guess I'm thinking like some of the common questions I get are, you know, my child is 17 months old and they are not speaking yet. Or my child is two and a half and they only say four words. Like at what point do people get anxious enough for evaluations? Or is this something you prefer not to, you know, 
speak on if this is not something that you're comfortable with. You know. What I mean? Well, yeah. So I don't know a whole lot about children and what is typically developing for children, but I will say my advice would be any parents that have concern about how their child is developing or if they're typically developing, I would absolutely recommend going to see a child speech and language pathologist, whether it be testing through the school or outside of school. Um, there are lots of private practices that do evaluations. A lot of universities do evaluations. Some hospitals do outpatient evaluations. I would recommend going to see someone if you have any questions about whether or not your child is typically developing, because the last thing you want to do is wait and prolong that process and prolong those answers because you're wasting valuable time um, because kids grow so fast and they learn so quickly. And so it's important to address any of those concerns as early as possible. So while I can't say what is typically developing or when a parent should reach out to a speech pathologist or get an evaluation, I would say if you have any concerns to do it immediately, as quickly as possible, because time is, is language, it's, it's speech. So we don't want to waste any time. 100%. And I echo that also in audiology because, it, you know, yes. if your kid says what, what, what for one weekend, that's enough for me. Yeah. Please come in. You know, don't, don't say, oh, six months ago. Oh, that's, the yeah. worst. that's the worst. And you come in. Yeah. About three years ago. <laughs> no. Where have you yeah. been? Please come in. And then you get the parents who are like, it happened this morning. And it's like, okay, down. <laughs> so somewhere in between. <laughs> Yeah. And I just encourage parents to trust their gut. I mean, I know that we are seen as the professionals, but really it's the parents who are the professionals. They know their children better than anyone else, better than we will ever know them. So if you have got a hunch that something's wrong or you're seeing your children in comparison to maybe other children their age or their peers, um, and you have a concern, it doesn't hurt to talk to someone or at least to inquire about it because you know your children better than anyone. And so trust your gut. If you feel like something is, is not right, then reach out to a speech and language pathologist or an audiologist um, as soon as possible. Thank you so much. You're saying everything I've been saying. It's almost like you listen to the show. <laughs> yes, I am a big fan of parents. <laughs> yes, they're great. Yeah, we're the ones. I, I happen to be a parent too. So uh, okay. I'm going to get, you know, just give myself a pat on the back. Yeah. What parents do, it's morning to night, 24 yes. 7, you're with the kid. And sometimes you need that professional, but yes. don't forget your role. And parents being yes. their child's biggest advocate, that's the message for me. Yes, yes, absolutely. I'm so glad I got to talk to you today. Yes, me too. If anybody wants to learn more about you or anything like that, do you have links or anything that you want to share? Well, that's a great question. So I'm actually in the process of starting a blog of my own, and it is me, the SLP. So I'll be starting that soon. Hopefully, I'm hoping to launch it for Better Speech and Hearing Month, which is this month, May. Um, so I'm hoping to launch it by the end of the month. And so if anyone is interested, by all means, please check out my blog. It's metheslp.com. And basically what I'll be doing is I'll be just providing insight on what it means to be a speech pathologist and 
helping those, especially minorities, kind of find their path and and find their place in this field and really just highlighting the diversity in our field and all that we do. So I'm hoping, again, I'm hoping to launch that by the end of the month. So if anyone is interested in learning more about me and about my path as a speech and language pathologist and hoping to get in the field of speech and language pathology, by all means, check out my blog, metheslp.com. That is such a wonderful endeavor. I wish you the best. Thank you so much. And diversity is so important in every field because diversity is what our population is. So it has to be represented. It has to match with with our professionals. So I think that's so important. Yes, yes. I'm hoping to highlight that in in my blog. And for those who feel like they are having difficulty finding their path and finding a spot in this field, it's available. You just have to make it for yourself. And so if anyone is interested in insight, you'll be able to find that on my blog. Thank you so much, Mary Louise Nichols. No problem. Thank you. Thank you again to Mary Louise Nichols. There are going to be links in the show notes and in the post that goes together with this at allaboutaudiology.com where you can find Mary Louise and her work. I appreciate her coming on the show and I'm looking forward to hearing what you guys thought about our conversation. Thanks so much for being a listener. I'm Dr. Lilach Saperstein and this is the All About Audiology podcast.